Got the power. Heater's not working. So just not a lot of space to get that set up. Uh, but here we are in Third John. And uh, as we look at this, we talked about last week the authorship and sort of the ups and downs of John's gospel, or excuse me, John, Third John and this epistle being uh, included in canon. No, and then we, we sort of concluded that discussion by a recognition of God's sovereignty and he being the actual author. And so this morning, as we look at the occasion of John writing this letter, that's really twofold. Number one, John would commend his friend and his brother in the faith, Gaius. And uh, ultimately, we find that this is something that is uh, designed to be distributed to the church, as we find that there are those who would withstand or, or come against John and his uh, other epistles to this church, this congregation. But he also did, and he expresses his desire to see Gaius prosper in all endeavors that he uh, puts himself to. And uh, second, John singles out Diotrephes for his pride and suppression of ministry. And we'll get to that as we progress. But both of those uh, purposes in writing really reveal John's heart toward the church. Uh, very likely, at this point, uh, we don't know when third john was written but we it's potentially the case it is, it is very likely that uh john is the only surviving apostle and not only that he's one of the eldest christians uh in existence at this point and so he views the church as his child if we see in verse four he says i have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth and we'll look at that verse a little bit as we progress uh, but he says we he rejoices in its good and he plans to correct its bad. That's the, that's the twofold purpose that John has here, which is how we would deal with our children. We rejoice in the good and we seek to train and to correct those things that are bad, that are wanting. And so here uh, we find that in, in that regard, Jesus had the same sentiment toward the church. In Matthew chapter 23, for example, uh, Matthew 23, verse 37 <clears throat> Jesus, as he enters into Jerusalem, laments. He says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathers her chickens under her wings, and you would not. So here is uh, Jesus, and as he enters into Jerusalem, the capital city of, of Israel, the, the people of God, he comes in and he, he laments, and he uh, mourns, as it were, for Jerusalem. He is grieved at their sinfulness, at their rejection of God. And he would have gathered them, he says. He would have brought them in as his children, as a hen does her chicks, but they were resistant to that. And so this is the same heart that we find a pastor would have towards his congregation, uh, that those that God has entrusted him with, that he would uh, seek to uh, establish and correct those things that need to be established and corrected, but he would also rejoice in the goodness and the growth and the maturity of the flock that God had given him. And Jesus holds this heart for all of his people. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 25, 1 Peter 2, 25 says, For you were a sheep going astray, but are now returned to the shepherd and bishop of your souls. And so here is Jesus and this description of him as the good shepherd. Uh, he which is stewarding our spiritual existence, our reality of who we are, we're going to find this morning. Uh, but but in so much that in his absence, he would establish those we find in Ephesians 4 to be his under shepherds. He would call some to be pastors and teachers, those who would equip and strengthen the flock, uh, the body of Christ, until the until there is no need for that, uh, until the coming of Christ ultimately. And this is his redeeming purpose. This is why he would come on the cross, that he might bring them and gather them together, uh, establish the church, so on and so forth. And so we look at this and we we see that this is the intent and the purpose for which John has written to commend and to correct the things that need to be corrected. Uh 
and primarily he's writing this, and we find that he he spends this as a relatively personal letter, uh, the time and an explanation and description to Gaius. That is the audience. That's who he's writing to. Now, I think that this is designed, this is a workaround, as it were. I, uh, he says in verse 9 that I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loveth to have the preeminence among you, he received us not. So here is John, and he's written a letter that he that he has sent, yet it's received and it is uh, withstood by this man Di Diotrephes. And so I think that in many respects, we have Gaius and Diotrephes I think that the the general context that would sort of line up, they attend the same church. And that there is Gaius who is receptive and friends of John. And this is John's effort to get description to the church that he's been trying to get to. But he has to work around Diotrephes. And so I think this is intended to be a letter that is written to the church, but he had to take a personal uh, route to get there. And I think that it ultimately was distributed to the church. But he writes to Gaius. That is his audience. And evidently, as, as far as we can tell, uh, with, with pretty good certainty, Gaius is a believer. He's a fellow Christian. He's loved in the truth by John. And he knew John. And, and really, the only personal detail that we can be certain of is that he does know John. We don't know where he's from. We don't know uh, any of those other facts and details. We don't know dates and times. Uh, there are some other references to a Gaius uh, or a couple other Gaiuses in the New Testament, but we have no clear evidence that this is one and the same. And so we operate on the assumption that it's a potentially a different Gaius, even if it was the same Gaius. We don't know much about those others other than where they were from. The long and short is that we can observe, even though we don't know who he is, we can observe some things about Gaius, and they're worth our time because he has very many winsome qualities for which John commends him. And I want to look at some of those this morning as we begin. First, we find that Gaius is recognized as someone who has a firm grasp, a firm knowledge of the truth, and then not only that he has a firm knowledge of the truth, but he is capable and does apply that truth. Look with me in verse 3. For I rejoice greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee, even as thou walkest in the truth. Now, I just want to, for, for just a few moments, right, we have we have two possibilities. We have either some personal correspondence being travel, traveling back and forth between John and Gaius uh, and this church, uh, and they're reporting back to John. That's one possibility. The second possibility is that, uh, as we find, that there are those who were missionaries who have gone out for the sake of the name of Christ, uh, we see in verse 7, that have been recipients of the hospitality of Gaius. And they have come back to John and they've expressed these very truths about him. One of the two things, but at any rate, uh, and scholars are divided, so I don't really know which one the, the context and the original languages would allow for either one. It's not specific. At any, at any rate, what we find is that Gaius is known, as we see in verse 3, they have testified of the truth that is in him and that he walks in the truth. So he has a knowledge of the truth and he walks in the truth. He knows it and he lives it. This is the first thing that we can observe about Gaius. In 2 John, just on the next page, Verse 4, here is John, again, writing to a different, different recipient, but it says, I rejoice greatly that I found of thy children walking in truth as we received a commandment from the Father. And I want to point that verse out because here is John talking about, for you and I, this idea that we would do just like Gaius does, that we would take the truth that we have now received and that we would walk in it, that it would become that which would characterize us, our application of that truth and how we would live and conduct ourselves being part of our witness. And we have this commandment from the Father, he says, that we would reflect him. And we're going to talk about that this morning. It's a very simple directive, but we find it summed up for us in Micah chapter 6, verse 8. And this was a memory verse, if you'll remember 
his uh, last year, Micah 6, 8. He has showed the old man what is good. And what does the Lord require of thee? But to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. Now, I realize that's a very grand simplification, but it really is uh, that straightforward. That we would, as believers in Christ, that we would do as God has showed us that we need to do, that we would first do justly, that we would love mercy, and that we would walk humbly with our God. That we would walk in honor and submission to who he is, what he's called us to, both generally and specifically. That we would submit ourselves to the truths that he has given us in his word. That we would walk in a way that reflects him, that would make him known. This is the New Testament principle that we read about uh, as we have the put on and the put offs uh, described for us in the New Testament. And in, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8, it says, For we were sometimes darkness. Right, that we we used to live in a particular way that was surrounded by and that was submitted to, yielding ourselves to sin uh, as we were trapped in it. But he says that's where we were. We were sometimes darkness. We in the past, this is how we lived and how we operated. But now you are light in the Lord. Right, we have received something different. We have been liberated from sin and death, and now that means to you and I is that there is no condemnation. But in addition to that, we have been given victory over the sin. We are to, as we read in uh, Romans 6, we are to count ourselves. We are to reckon ourselves dead to sin. In other words, we're no longer slaves to it. We may struggle with it, but it isn't something that we have to give ourselves over to. And he goes on, he says, therefore, because we are light, walk as children of light. Walk in a way that would reflect who our Father in heaven is, that, that we are his children. In 1 John chapter 1, 1 John chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. Right, that there is for you and I this representation on the outside of what is of what is on the inside. And we can deny that in our deeds. He goes on in verse 7, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now, this isn't to be understood as a conditional statement. Right? We, we are born again through faith in Jesus Christ and that alone, not by any works, nor do we maintain our salvation by works. We have the assurance of our salvation through the deposit, as it were, the earnest of the Holy Spirit. That is sure. But what he's saying is that we can deny the very light that is within us, the freedom and the liberty that we've received in Christ by the way that we conduct ourselves. And this commandment that we received of the Lord that John talks about in 2 John is just this, that we would walk consistently with the profession of our faith. That if we are children of light, we would walk as children of light. We would call sin, sin. We would call righteousness, righteousness in accordance with what God has laid out for us in his word. Here is Caius, and he's recognized and witnessed as somebody who understands the truth. He has a firm handle on what God has revealed. He knows the gospel. He understands the transformative power of the gospel. And as a result of his understanding, his knowledge of truth, of the scripture that we hold here in our hands, in our Bibles, he takes that and he puts it into practice. Not only does he know it, but it says, even as thou walkest in the truth, and he's understood, and there's this witness and this, this uh, testimony of who Gaius is and that he knows truth and that he walks in it. He applies it in his life. He lets the word of God, as we read in, in what Paul wrote, dwell in him richly, that it would inform how he should live, how he should conduct himself. And that should be true of you and I. This is one of the winsome qualities. This is, as we talked about it evangelism, this is part of our witness, the living that we would have that would deny or that would confirm the witness that we have of Christ. We find that 
that Gaius is known for trustworthy service. Look with me in verse 5. Beloved, and this is John writing to Gaius, Beloved, thou thou doest faithfully whatsoever thou doest to the brethren and to strangers. So here is Gaius. He's known for this trustworthy service, both to the lost and to the church, that he would engage in service in putting himself out there to those who were in the church and to those who were outside of the church. He's known for that. You can count on him. He is a man that you know if you give him a task, it's going to be accomplished because he understands something. He understands what we read in Colossians chapter 3, verse 17. Colossians 3, 17. And this should be a familiar verse to us because we've talked about it before. And it says, whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. So here this morning, we have all this snow and it's everywhere. And we take the time, uh, not certain anyone's going to make it in this morning because the roads might be hard to travel and they might be snowed in at their own houses, so on and so forth. And we take the time and we shovel. We didn't shovel everything, but we shovel enough and we can get in and out. Right? That's a service to those that we fellowship with. And I had this morning somebody stop and they drove by, they turned the corner and they grabbed their snow shovel out of their pickup and he came and helped me shovel the front. That's a service to a stranger, some guy that just doesn't even know who I am, but sees that here I am shoveling snow and he swings in and he helps out. Here is this testimony of trustworthy service. And it might be that it's something so simple that we would put ourselves out there, that we would commit to do something relatively small. I'm going to be there early enough to church that, the, that we can get the coffee stuff out and, and then everybody can enjoy a cup of coffee during church. Whatever and seemingly insignificant as it may be, it is trustworthy. It can be counted upon. Those things that we would commit to. As we study through the book of Romans and we got into Romans chapter 12, we looked at the word, the, the things that are listed there as graces of the Spirit, and that's what the term that's there actually means, those things that God would call us and enable us to do, and that his grace would be sufficient for those tasks, that we would serve in them and that we would be trustworthy in that, not because we know that we're serving other people, but because we're serving God, because he is worthy and deserving of our absolute and utter best, whatever that looks like for you or me, because it's going to be to greater or lesser degree as we have ability, but we're serving him. And we do it as if we're serving him. In 1 Peter chapter 4, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11. As every man has received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Right here is Peter writing for you and I that we have received this gift. We have all received the grace of God. We receive within us the ability and the desire to do things that he has called us to. Not only that, we receive giftings and callings and abilities by the Spirit that we would be able to serve. As we have received that, as good stewards, we minister. We take what we've received and we put it out there in service of those that are both in the church and outside of the church. We're not to hoard what we have received from God. It is something that has been given to us that we would proclaim, that we would live, and that we would serve. He goes on in verse 11, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God gives, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, this isn't an exhaustive list, but all this means is that Peter is giving us some examples, and we could fill in the blanks, whatever it may be. We have the ability, we have the, the, the means to clear snow, which I've done for our neighbor. I have a snowblower, and she doesn't. So when I do my driveway, then I finish up and I go do her driveway. It's small. It's insignificant. It's a small investment of my time, but I do it because he represents the Lord. It's service to him. 
Glass was liberal in all that he had received, everything that he did. He was liberal with his time. Apparently, he was liberal with his means as he was hospitable to those that had traveled through these evangelists, and he welcomed them into his home. Matthew 25, 45, Jesus would commend those. He says that as you've done it unto the least of these, you've done it unto me. Our service is to him and to him first and foremost. Therefore, if we withdraw ourselves, if we don't steward what we receive, we're actually not serving the Lord. You can't be one or the other. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 2 Corinthians 4, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, seeing we have this ministry as we have received a mercy, we thank not, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. We have a ministry to make God known for his glory. We do this like Gaius has done this without resting, without twisting the word of God, without manipulative appeals, but by the clear presentation of the truth. We have to understand not everyone's going to hear, but we do this even so. Because our service isn't to put spiritual notches on our belt for our own recognition, for our own satisfaction. Our service is unto the Lord for his glory and for his honor. Here is Gaius. He's known as a man who recognizes the truth, who knows the truth and lives it. He's also known as somebody who is trustworthy in service, both in and out of the church. How powerful of a witness would it be to have a church that is known for handling the truth and living the truth, and then not only that, but taking and being trustworthy in service, that is engaged in the community, that reaches out to their neighbors, that takes the spheres of influence that God has placed them in sovereignly, providentially, and engages in them as the stewards of the grace of God. Gaius is also known, and I've mentioned it already, but he's known for kind hospitality. Verse 6, he says, We have borne witness of thy charity before the church. Which have borne witness of thy charity before the church? So here are these brethren, those that are traveling. I tend to be of the opinion that, that Paul is simply talking about these missionaries that have traveled around, these evangelists. And that they have borne witness of his charity as they stayed with him, as they were partakers of his hospitality. He says, which if thou bring forward on their journey after a godly sort, thou shalt do well. In verse 7, because that for his namesake they went forth, taking nothing of the Gentiles. So here are these missionaries that are traveling, these evangelists, and they're uh, traveling through Gaius's area. They swing into the church, and they receive hospitality. He opens his house up. He is a steward of the grace of God that he has received. And as a result of that, he engages in hospitality. And when we talk about hospitality, it's not this modern understanding of entertaining or adding religion to some gathering. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. And there, that doesn't necessarily even mean that, that opening our doors uh, or things like that. For example, our family for years has always uh, tried to invite people to our Thanksgiving dinner. As long as we've done that as a family, we've always known people who didn't have other family. We would make sure they were invited to our place or to Christmas. Right? That, in, in part, that is the hospitality that we're talking about, but it isn't simply adding uh, or just having people over to entertain. Being hospitable is far greater than that. It isn't about us or our enjoyment. It's about honoring God by our obedience. Hospitality is to be characteristic of our lifestyle. You remember that one of the qualifications for eldership is hospitality. Not just that they would be having parties all the time, but that they would be stewarding that which God had entrusted them, like Gaius, who opens his home, who serves and meets the needs of those who have need. In Romans chapter 12, if you'll turn there with me, Romans chapter 12, verse 13. Romans 12, 13. For I say, through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly 
then he ought to think, but, uh, oh, 13, verse 13, Romans 12, 13. It says, to distributing to the necessity of the saints given to hospitality. In other words, this is a command. As we look through this chapter, as, as we see this, there are things that we are supposed to be doing in. And this is in regard to having then, in verse 6, having then gifts different according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, we do this, and so on and so forth. He that exhorts, in verse 8, let him exhort. Let love be without dissimulation, and that's to everybody. And we, and at that point, in verse 9, we enter into this list of characteristics that should be engaged in, or there should be characteristic of believers. And as we look at that, we find in verse 13, there's this distributing to the necessity of the saints and given to hospitality. Those two being linked together, this distributing to the saints and hospitality, that we would open our doors. Just as guys, they're the people traveling through, obviously they need a place to stay, but in addition to that, they're going to need meals. They're going to need all kinds of things. They need a place to take a shower, whatever it is. Our church hasn't had opportunity, and nor are we situated such, but other churches might have a house that they own, and then when missionaries are traveling through, they have the opportunity to open doors. Come and stay here. When you're on leave, when you're on furlough, we have a place to stay. We can distribute and meet and minister to the needs that they may have. This is characteristic. This is something that we should be doing. Now, I tend to be one of those people that's very critical, or not critical, but uh, suspect of people. Right? I, I've sat at Walmart and the corners there around Walmart and the corners in our area where people will will hold up their little signs and things, and I've seen enough of them get out of their cars that are nicer than anything that I drive, that I'm that I'm not going to give them anything. They're manipulating and taking advantage of people. But if somebody that needs help that I don't recognize, perhaps I'll help them because this is what we're called to do. We're to take what we've been given or to be stewards of it for God's honor and for his glory. I'm not responsible for how they use that. But at the same time, I need to be a wise steward. We have this opportunity here as guys as an example of that. In Hebrews chapter 13, it says, it tells us to be careful that we would be hospitable because there are those who in their hospitality have entertained angels without even knowing it. Hebrews 13, 2. Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, it says. Because we may be, even as Jesus would say, as we've done it unto the least of those, we've done it unto him. We're ministering to those we may not know. But there is this call to be liberal in our giving to those who are outside. Not only that, but it's to be within the church. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 9, use hospitality one to another without grudging. Right, that we would open our homes, that we would be those that would have, uh, we'd be willing to host the Bible study. We would be willing to let our home be the center of spiritual development and growth. That our home would be a hub for the ministry that God has called us to. And it says, notice that they're not grudgingly. It's burden in many respects to have your home be the center of things like that. We are stewards of what God has entrusted us with. That means that there takes some care and sort of and and those kinds of things. And listen, nobody's house is perfect all of the time. Not only that, but there's a burden. I mean, we're going to be providing the, the the snacks, or you're going to be providing the coffees and the drinks and all of the things that go with that. Maybe you don't have feel like you have enough room. You don't have enough whatever it is. Fill in the blank. Whatever your excuse may be, that's grudging what God may be calling you to do. We're to be stewards of it, not hoarders of what we have received. But we're to be hospitable both to strangers and to friends, those within the church and those outside of the church. And we do so, hospitality is without any thought of return. In Luke chapter 14, Luke 14, verse 13. I'm going to begin verse 12. Jesus is here instructing his disciples. Then said he also to the to him that bade him, When thou makest a dinner or a supper, call not thy friends, nor thy brother, neither thy kinsmen, nor thy rich neighbors. Lest they also bid thee again, and recompense be made thee. 
But when thou makest a feast, call the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind. And thou shalt be blessed, for they cannot recompense thee, for thou shalt be recompensed at the resurrection of the just. Here is Jesus, and, and listen, he's not saying don't have friends, and he's not saying don't invite your friends and neighbors. What he's saying is that we don't invite them with the thought of return. Just because I had you over for dinner doesn't obligate you to have me over for dinner. Just because I exercise hospitality toward you doesn't in any way, shape, or form obligate you to have hospitality toward me. Your obligation and only obligation would be before the Lord, just as mine is before the Lord. We should be hospitable in the what we have received and how we and how we steward it. It needs to be a center of the ministry that we've been given. Whether it's finances and we're liberal and, and hospitable in the use of those, whether it's time, whether it's our houses, whatever it may be, those things that God has given us are to be stewarded for his glory and honor. This is goodness. This is what we know about him. This is how we can observe from his life. This is his application of the truth, that he is recognized for knowledge of the truth of the gospel, of, of a firm handling of the word of God, and that he is wise in its application, that he is known for trustworthy service in the church and outside of the church. And he's known for kind hospitality. Now, one thing that we see here, and, and I want to talk about this for just a moment as we come to a close this morning for the next few minutes, that as Paul, excuse me, as John comes into this and he's writing here, he, he says in verse two, Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health, even as thy soul prospereth. So John prays for Gaius' physical prosperity, and that's literally what the word means. It's used about three other times uh, in the New Testament, twice in that verse, and then two other times. Uh, Paul asked that people pray that he would have a prosperous journey, that it would go smoothly, you know, just like we would do. We pray for traveling mercies. It's exactly the same kind of prayer. And that's what it's normally used as. So here is Paul, excuse me, John, and he's praying for the prosperity of his friend. And that word that is used in verse 2, and I think it's translated this way in the ESV, means that, that all things would go well with you. That whatever you set your hand to, that it would go well with you. And it's a kind and it's a loving sentiment. It's the well-wishing that we would have towards our friends, towards our children. Now, it's not to be misunderstood as the promise of some physical prosperity. We may find that God would use poverty or or even prosperity for that matter uh to sanctify us that he would move providentially but it, it isn't even a promise of everything going well with us in fact we find many instances in scripture where god uh would apply hardship to conform his people to the image of christ so don't, mis don't misapply this, and we can't create some doctrine around that. All John is doing is giving this idea and conveying this, this love and concern and this well-wish toward his friend, just like we would do. The important phrase in John's prayer and what we need to focus on and what we should pay attention to is upon the statement of Gaius's soul prosperity. Notice that he says, I pray that you will prosper and be in health, even as thy soul prospereth. It is a recognition of his faithfulness. Uh, see, all that is, John, add that caveat, and, and it's a recognition of the sovereignty of God. It's a recognition of his faithfulness to complete within guys and within you and I, the work that has begun at, the, at our conversion. We see the fruit of our spiritual prosperity in our lives. And we understand that the prosperity of our soul is the fruit of our salvation and the work of the Spirit within us. In Colossians chapter 1, let's look at that for just a moment. Colossians chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which you have to all the saints for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, where have you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which is come unto you as it is in all the world and brings forth fruit as it does also in you since the day you heard of it and knew the grace of God in truth. 
right? We understand that the prosperity of our soul, of our spirit, what we have received in Christ is manifested in fruit within us, in development, in spiritual growth, in conformity to the image of Christ. In 1 Thessalonians, if you'll remember, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, as we studied through that, we saw that here, as Paul introduces in that first chapter, he commends the Thessalonian church because their faith is recognized that, that they, like Gaius, are those who were known for a consistent application of truth. If we just read some of these verses, he says, we give thanks in verse 2 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We give thanks of God always for you, for all making all mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father. Right? That here is Paul rejoicing for this church that has been established because they're firm in their faith, because they walk in it, because they labor in love. And so much so that as we read on, as we continue through that first chapter, we see that they're sending out missionaries. Verse 8, For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith to God word is spread abroad so that we need not to speak anything. There is this development within this church, and they as they grow in Thessalonica, and as they bear the fruit of ministry of, of excuse me the fruit of grace in their in their lives it's known not only in their judea and their samaria but to the uttermost parts of the earth in james chapter 2 verse 17 as we read through that passage relating our lifestyle our works to our faith james would say faith even if it has not works is dead being alone that the outward reflection, the outward lifestyle that we would hold is a reflection of what is actually inside of us. He says, you, you say that you have faith. I'll show you my faith by my works, by how I live, by how I conduct myself, by what I do. And this should be true of you and I. This is the fruit of spiritual prosperity. That we are made known, that Christ is made known through the, our conduct. In Galatians chapter 5, as we look at the fruit of the Spirit, that which would, God would bear within us, above and beyond anything that we could do within ourselves. Galatians 5, 22 through 26, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And they which are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and the lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us provoke one another. Let, excuse me. Let us not be de desirous of vainglory, provoking one another, envying one another. Right? That there would be a different and a different way in our conduct. That it would be manifesting, manifesting the love, the joy, those things that are fruits within us that God would bring about in us. And rather than hoard those fruits, rather than hold on to them, that our prosperity would be such that we give of them. I'm reminded of the, the, the Christmas carol written by uh, Charles Dickens. And we have Scrooge, this miserly old Scrooge, who withholds and hoards every penny that he's ever made. And all he's worried about, and he, you know, Christmas is just this excuse, as he says, to pick a man's pocket every 25th of December. Yet what do we find in Scrooge later? We find that as he comes to this, uh, this almost salvation-like experience, realizing how miserly he was, we find this liberality that is this fruit is born within him, this change of heart, this change of life, similar and illustrative of what we receive in Christ in reality. He's now liberal in his giving. So much so that he throws open the window on the first day after the spirits have visited him, and he sees the boy running, and he asks them about the, the prize turkey. And he buys it for his little clerk and Tiny Tim. This is an, an illustration in many respects of how it should work with us, the abundance of what is being developed in us by the spirit 
through the grace of God in our lives is such that it is overflowing and we pour it out without any thought of ourselves. We reduce what Gaius is known for to its simplest terms. We find that he is a whole man. That he is complete in every aspect. In other words, he is living in the purpose for which he and for which all mankind is created for. His outward actions clearly reflecting the inward man, and they show and honor God in everything that he does. That is prosperity. To have the reality of our inner man be reflected and consistently manifest in our outward man. And that's what we read in verses 3 through 6. As John rejoices, because he sees and he hears the witness and the testimony of Gaius's knowledge of the word, his, his understanding of that truth, his application of it. As he rejoices, because Gaius is a faithful servant. As he hears about the hospitality that he has uh, shed upon these people. What we need to realize is that the the lost world around us is like you and I when we come to somebody's house and, and there's a dog and, and we don't know this dog, but it's laying there on the porch and we have to get past this dog to get to the door. Right? The dog lays there on the porch. I don't know it. It doesn't know me. And so I am observing the outward characteristics of this dog, what he's doing to try to determine what is the inward heart and attitude of this particular animal. Whether he jumps up and bares his teeth and tucks his tail and is cowardly and, and, and prone to bite because he's uncertain of me. Whether he wags his tail and puts his ears back and begs for pet. Right? We're observing the outside and the world looks at you and I in the church and it says, who is this dog that I don't know anything about and what kind of characteristics does it have? Is it going to bite me or is it something that I should investigate? The prosperity of our soul should be such that it overflows and it manifests itself in our conduct. Right? We're studying through and we're, well, we're reading through the green letters. And it's principles of spiritual development. That's the subtitle. That is the book. And all it's about is this, this understanding that we would take the very principles of the word of God, those that God has given us for spiritual growth, and we would put them into practice. We would know them like Gaius. In like manner, we're created in God's image. But this is, we are his ambassadors and what people observe in our physical is our physical existence. However, the reality is our spiritual existence. That's who we really are. And what cannot be seen with the eye can't be observed in any other way than what comes out on the outside. Just like that strange dog. The reality of our soul's prosperity is that we are saved, that we have received the benefit of spiritual inheritance, adoption, and of eternal life, that we are God's children. And as such, we are the ambassadors of God. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 19 and 20. 2 Corinthians 5, 19 and 20. Wit that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and has committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be you reconciled to God. An ambassador is a representative of the country, and we know about that country and its customs and its culture through that person. They encapsulate what it's about, and they represent what that country stands for. And here we're told by Paul that we are ambassadors of Christ, that we represent what he stands for, that the prosperity of our soul, the conformity to his image, of, to whatever degree, greater or lesser, is conducted through the outward 
through our physical frame, through the way that we speak, through the way that we conduct ourselves, the things that we do or the things that we don't do. In the way that we would be hospitable or not hospitable, in the way that we would be kind, in the way that we would show love, in the way that we would minister and serve those in the church and outside of the church, or the way that we would not do any of those things. Is a representation of what is inside. And it represents for you and I either a prosperity of soul that we would pour out, that we would have something to distribute from, or that we are stunted in our growth and our development, such to the, to the fact that I would not or that I could not minister in the name of Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 17. Now the Lord is that spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. There is freedom. There is deliverance. But we all, with open face, beholding in a glass the glory of the Lord, were changed in the same image from glory to glory, even as the spirit of the Lord. Here are you and I, as believers in Christ, with the unique ability to, to represent God to the world correctly and accurately, being made in his image, as we read in Genesis chapter 1. Let us make man in our image. And the chief end, the, the greatest accomplishment that we may have is to represent him in what we do. And as we just read, we, we behold in a glass. In other words, it is a reflection of. We behold this reflection of the glory of God, and we are changed into the same image. It's imperfect, it's not clear, but it is a representation of the glory of God by the Spirit of the Lord. And when the world looks at you and I, looks at the church, when it looks at those who would name the name of Christ, it should see Christ. It should see the love of God. It should see the very image of their creator to whatever degree that we could. And as we do all things for his glory, we would endeavor and we would pursue in our development the ability to clearly and correctly represent him, which is what Gaius has done. He goes on into chapter 4. Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, we as we have received mercy, we thank not. What is this ministry that we would reflect and make known who God is, that we would represent him to the world around us? I don't say any of this to, to chew my own horn, but there is a certain amount of time and study and effort that goes into preparing a sermon for a Sunday morning. And some take more than others. Some come far more easily than others. But I have this ministry that God has called me to, and so therefore I'm going to put the time in whether I feel like it or not, because this is what he has called me to. And all I'm saying and what I'm trying to illustrate there is that he says in verse 1 of chapter 4 that we have this ministry, that the body of Christ has the ministry of making Jesus known, of bringing glory and honor to God, of being his image bearers and his ambassadors. And to that end, what effort, what, what time do we invest to develop ourselves into such like Gaius that would clearly and consistently represent him. Do I study the word of God? Do I examine my heart in light of what I read? Am I applying the word of God in my life? Am I taking what it says to do as a believer and putting it into practice, whether it's hospitality, whether it's in showing love, whether it's in service to my church or service outside of my church? Am I doing those things? Am I developing spiritually such that I have an abundance to give from? Or am I shorting not only myself, but all those that God would call me to minister to? Here is Gaius, and we look at his example, and there's not a lot that we could observe about him. But what we can observe about this man is that he knows God, that he handles the truth, that he walks in the truth, that he is submitted to the Spirit of God, and that he lets the Word of God instruct him. 
And as a result of his knowledge and his application of the truth, he is known for faithful service. He is known for glorifying God in everything that he does. And as a result, John prays and gives this sentiment of prosperity. And because he knows of Gaius and because he knows uh, the, the amount and the effort and the, the, the strength of his soul, he adds the caveat that he would prosper as his soul prospers. That he would, that whatever he does would be as successful as his Christian walk. Now, there have been times in my life where I would realize and I, and I would say, boy, if God would bless me physically in, in, in the same as, as I am known for my Christian walk, then sometimes that's that's a great blessing and sometimes it feels like less of a blessing. But because John knows Gaius, because Gaius has this reputation and because he is in fact engaged in growing, engaged in spiritual development to the extent that he has an abundance to serve from, that he is stewarding the grace that he has received and liberally pouring it out, John can safely say, and with great enthusiasm and blessing, that he would pray for his prosperity physically, the same as his prosperity spiritually. And what would we say if somebody said the same for us? Would we cringe because we know that we've withheld ourselves from our own spiritual development? Because we're hoarders of the grace of God that we have received, and we're not liberal in its pouring out. We're not careful stewards of what he, he has given us. Or would we rejoice, knowing that we have put in the time, that we have, that we have pursued God in his word and in submission to the Spirit? That's the question I'll leave you with this morning. That's the question I leave you to ponder. John says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. And we who were parents can clearly reflect upon that, knowing the heart that is there. And we would rejoice if our children were those who were known as, as Gaius. And I, too, as a pastor, would rejoice if my congregation is known in the same light that Gaius is known. And Jesus himself would rejoice if his children walked in truth to the extent that Gaius walked in truth. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to be in your word. And Lord, I thank you that your word addresses us and finds us wherever we are at. And so, Lord, may it be an encouragement or may it be a challenge and an exhortation as your spirit works in each one of us. We praise you and thank you for the example of this godly man, Gaius. And Lord, his, this, his being recorded and preserved here in John's epistle. And Lord, by your grace and through the work of the Spirit in our lives, Lord, may you bring us to a point where we are known as the same. That the prosperity of our soul, the growth and development spiritually that we might have would be a place that we could draw from, that we might minister liberally in your name for your glory and for your honor, knowing that we do it as unto you, whatever it is that we may do. We thank you and we praise you, Lord. We ask this humbly in Jesus' name. Amen.